Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 249. And on this episode, I have journalist and author Amanda M. Fairbanks. Amanda wrote a book called The Lost Boys of Montauk, a true story of the windblown, four men who vanished at sea, and the survivors they left behind. This had like all of the makings of like a perfect summer book for me. It's a quick read. It's an adventure story in a sense. It's a mystery in a sense. And it's true. And what I thought was so fascinating about it was that, yes, on the surface, it's about these four commercial fishermen who are lost at sea, but really it's about all of the people in their orbit, kind of like the spider webbing effect of everybody who is impacted by their passing. And right now I'm reading Bourdain's documentary, uh, reading his biography, and I'm seeing a lot of parallels because... There are people looking for answers as to why, why did he take his life? Uh, just like people were looking for the, the why and the how and the where are these guys? Where is this ship that was never recovered? And in doing so, Amanda, it's just like Lori for Anthony, is talking to all of the people who were left behind when these people passed. And so you get stories and opinions and points of view and it makes me think, like, what happens if I were to pass prematurely or if I had, like, reached a stage in my life where I knew so many people, what would they be thinking about me? And what would they be saying about me? That is a scary proposition. So this is a really fascinating book, and she writes it uh, in a fantastic way. So I was really happy to get to sit down with her. Uh, she had me at her really beautiful home out in Sag Harbor. If you're not familiar, if you're heading out to Montauk, on the highway, it's kind of a highway, kind of not really a highway, really. It's just like a single lane road. But there's an offshoot that heads towards uh, where I guess you would take the ferry to Shelter Island, and it's Sag Harbor. It's less populated. Um, I guess it has less visitors than Montauk, but it's a literary haven, um, you know, based on the sheer beauty, but also historically a lot of authors have sort of posted up there to write. And so Amanda fits in with that tradition and it was a real pleasure to get to go out there and to talk to her and to see Sag Harbor for the first time. I've been going out to Montauk and over by the East End for years and I've never been to Sag Harbor. So this was really cool. So if you haven't read the book, you can either listen to this first and read it or read it and then listen. I, you know... I guess there's some spoilers, but there are a few twists and things that Amanda uncovered in the stories about these men's lives and the people in their orbit that we don't spoil. I thought it was important that we didn't mention those, like out of respect for people who hear this and then want to go read the book. So yeah, make sure you get the book. Like Amanda says, uh, support local. Don't buy it on Amazon. There are local shops everywhere. Go pick one up. And yeah. Go to the notes for this episode and you'll find a link to Amanda's website and her social media so you can find out some more stuff about her. She talks about an upcoming project, but she also has articles in journalism from the past and ongoing that are all really fantastic, so check that out. I also have a link to my Patreon account. That is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. Sometimes it is the very book that's being discussed if I have an author on. You never know what you're going to get if you are a Patreon supporter. Uh, but if you can't do that, 
I get it. We're in strange times, and there are people who need money uh, much more than me. What you can do to support is tell people about this podcast. Word of mouth is great, but also a rating and review on iTunes goes a long way. Uh, liking, subscribing, all that good stuff. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Amanda Fairbanks. Well, I mean, all the more reason to be appreciative that I can do this in person. So thank you so much. Oh, so good to be here. And also, person. I've been going to Montauk since I was a kid. I've never been to Sag Harbor. <laughs> wow, right. You would have just like driven right past it. Why yeah, would you I've always Sag Harbor? seen like the offshoot from 27, I guess. Okay. Um, so this is my first time and it's really beautiful out here. So thank you for... Thank you for being here. Getting me out here. Yeah, yeah, of course. September and October are really uh, my two favorite months. October is the new September, they're saying, because of global warming. Mm. And um, it's just been, it's a really lovely time of year. Yeah, I was just saying to my girlfriend yesterday, it's like we're, I know in like a week or two, all of a sudden it's going to be freezing. Really <laughs> We'd be sitting out here in parkas and scarves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm extra appreciative because, I mean, I was going through your Twitter mentions and I'm like, my goodness, like you've done so much media and press for the book, which I guess you have to, but like, it's you know, a lot. Katie yeah. Couric and like all these people, I'm like, oh my God. So, um, I'm not them. So. Oh, stop. <laughs> yeah, this is even better. Um, it, it has been a lot. Uh, you know, I thought when, when the book came out, they were like, it's going to be about two weeks of interviews and press. And, um, I think all told this summer, I did close to 30 events and that's Whoa. not even including interviews and, and other types of press. So it was a lot. Um, I'm sort of an introverted extrovert and I, I love talking to people I'm and that way like, too. you know, putting that side of myself out into the world, but it was also a lot and it went on for the whole summer essentially. Um, and it's, it's sort of, I have a few events scattered throughout the fall. Um, so yeah, my kids and my husband were like, we've had enough. <laughs> yeah. I imagine you in the past were on the other side of that doing journalism. Always. But now you're the one speaking to the journalists. Super weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm much, much, much more comfortable, obviously, as you can appreciate, um, asking the questions rather than being the one answering them. Mm. So I've been working on a, a piece, uh, a new piece out for the Times, and it's been so much more fun to, to be back in my old uh, role uh-huh, uh, yeah, of yeah. interviewer and questioner uh, rather than interviewee. I've never written a book. Um, I don't recommend it. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I want to. Actually, about the topic we were discussing before we were recording, um, like stories from schools and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. For projects I've done, or even an episode like this, there's a lot of buildup, right? So we were even out last night, and you'll see I go on a lot of tangents. We went to see a musician last night and it was really beautiful and I had a couple of drinks. So I'm like feeling extra poetic and I'm like thinking through the things that we would talk about today. So there's a lot of buildup, but then when I'm done, it's done. It's like reading a really long book and you're like almost let down because it's like, what do I do next? Like, what is the feeling when you've put all of this work into a book and now this thing is finished? Is it like, ah, I'm so accomplished or is it like, oh no, what do I do next? Oh, um, that's such a good question. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both for me personally. Um, you know, I guess I had always wanted to write a book, although I don't know that it was so concrete of a goal that I had in mind for myself. I mean, Mm. the story sort of found me and then obviously I saw that it was a book and I was like, oh, this is so cool because 
I think I had thought like, oh, I need to think of a book and, and, um, and basically that never happens. And the book sort of has to find you generally speaking. Mm. Um, but yeah, putting it out into the world, you know, after I had, you know, been living with it for close to three and a half years and writing it and rewriting it and, you know, all the different stages that it went through. Um, I'm a real perfectionist and I really felt like that the thing I was putting out into the world was the best that I could make it. Mm. Um, and writing, as you know, can be endlessly revised and tweaked. And, um, so that was another thing to get over, which was like, at some, at some point it's done. It's the best I can make it. Yeah. Um, and then certainly, um, because, uh, I don't know what it is. I'm a perfectionist slash overachiever. I remember we took a trip to California in June. I'm going to go on a little tangent of my own. Cool. And my husband has written a couple of books. And I remember we were sitting in the car on one of these long car rides with our two kids in the back. And I was like, you know, it's so weird because we're, we're here and it's mid June and my books come out and it's doing really well. And like, I can't even enjoy it because I'm already thinking about, well, what's my next book going to be? And what's mm. my next project slash obsession going to be? And so I've really been trying to just enjoy it this summer and interacting with people and, and, and really put the idea of a new project sort of on hold. And then invariably through sort of the, the latter part of the summer and into the early fall, uh, a new project has sort of found me again. Um, not, not here. It's not based here. It's based in Connecticut. Uh, I sort of learned my lesson of not writing in the town in which you're you're living <laughs> full time. Um, I'm going to come anyway, back to that too. I'll, yeah, put, we'll I'll pin that. Yeah, but <laughs> we'll, let's put a pin in that. Um, but yeah, a little bit of both for sure. Uh, cool, cool. Uh, so you grew up in California. I did. Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles until, uh, until college. What was, I guess, what a question, but like what what generally was growing up there like for you? Oh, um, what was it like? You know, I I've always felt like I'm a little bit of an old soul. So I'm in my early 40s and now I feel like I'm sort of the age that I always was in a super weird way hmm. that either will or will not make sense. Um, and, you know, I felt like early on, I didn't quite gel with the Southern California culture. I really have an appreciation for it now when I visit. But when I was in high school or what have you, um, I just didn't get it. Like the surf culture and the beach culture and everyone just seemed like way too relaxed. Hmm. And I was kind of a like type A student personality. And then I did a, a trip actually uh, to South Africa in the summer of my junior year of high school, um, which was super cool. And I interacted with just, I was the only West Coaster and there were just these ton of East Coast kids. And I was like, these are my people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had an aunt at the time who since passed away, who was super influential and had grown up in New York and was like, I really think you need to go to the East Coast for college. Like, just try it out, you know? Um, and so I did and I based, I mean, I, I moved back for a couple of summers for different jobs and what have you, but I've essentially been, been based on the East coast ever since. Um, so it's weird. I, I think a lot of people like, especially on the East end when they, when we moved back, we're like, why would you leave California? You know, you realize that there's winter here and, um, I actually really love the seasonality and, yeah. and you know, in LA it's just, it's always 75 and beautiful and perfect. And, um, yeah, I just, I feel really at home here, strangely enough. How did you get to go to South Africa? I don't remember if you mentioned that in the book. I did not mention that in the book. Um, that was just sort of like this young uh, leadership program that I oh. applied to and got in. And That's it was amazing. a really life-changing experience for sure. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, early in life, were there particular like writers or artists or people in your life that 
either interested you in or like set you down the path of writing and journalism and, and books and all that? You know, I was never very good um, at math and science, <laughs> and I definitely Same. gravitated toward <laughs> reading and writing and history and what have you um, from a very, very early age. Uh, you know, my mom would recall that I'd sit at the kitchen table and be writing and learning cursive and just telling stories. Um, and, you know, I never, ever thought really in terms of fiction mm. and journalism was something I did. Like, I, you know, I was in the high school newspaper and then I did that a little bit in college Um but I didn't really know that it was what I wanted to do, uh, honestly, until I started teaching. So this would have been, I, d I did Teach for America after college, and I spent two years in Washington Heights in middle school. And that was really when I wanted to specifically um, tell these stories of mm. these kids and this world that I felt like I had never had access to before. Um, and so for a long time, I did a lot of education, reporting and writing, um, oh, wow. which is really just telling stories about families and kids and um, especially uh, in the city, um, the different, you know, disenfranchised population living in, in these areas that, that are, are often not covered. Um, and then from there, I sort of obviously my book is a, a completely different topic and iteration. But um, but that was sort of what what got me interested. And from there, I applied to Columbia and I did their journalism program for two years. And oh. um, it, I really met, feel like I met my people there. Yeah, and you, I mean, you got into the Times like pretty early in your writing career, right? Yes. Oh my gosh, it was like a, it was a dream come true. Gail yeah. Collins uh, was my first boss, and just around the time that I was graduating, um, her assistant was leaving, and I went over to her apartment. And I was super nervous, and we had coffee, and I was just like. I have to have this job. <laughs> hmm. um, so she she uh, took me under her, her wing and hired me. And this was back in the, the olden days when all New York Times columnists had their own researcher, which was like, now they're they're split between two and three people, but uh, essentially, you know, I would help her research and report her column, um, and then she gave me essentially two days a week to go work for Metro, and I'd go out and be sort of a stringer for whatever they needed to get, um, you know, done for the day. Um, and she was so sweet. She had this glass wall. Uh, the building is all made of glass and she had this glass sliding door. And over the year, I was there for about three years working with her and, and she would, you know, tape each of my stories to her wall. And by the end, I think I had like almost a full wall. I should have taken a picture. Oh, like, yeah, I yeah. Have, you know, we, I didn't, didn't have an iPhone then. I don't know what I had. Um, but no, that was a really, really formative time and experience. And I'm sure, yeah. I'm still in touch with a lot of my colleagues from, from, from that, that era as well. Okay, very yeah. cool. I also feel like I went into print journalism at sort of the exact wrong moment in history. Yeah. Um, when when I was at Columbia, there was this thing called new media, which mm -hmm. I'm putting in quotes, which obviously your listeners can't see. And it was kind of funny because um, like the more serious journalists, I would say, did, did a concentration, which I did, of course, called magazine journalism, which was like a completely failing enterprise now. And we were like, oh, these new media people writing for the Internet, like, you know, obviously they're not to be taken as seriously. Right. And clearly the joke was <laughs> on us because in the subsequent years, certainly everything be shifted online and became new media. Um but yeah, the Times was undergoing, you know, just like these insane layoffs every year and I didn't get laid off, but it just, it was a very fraught um, and, and challenging time. Mm, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I discovered you and the book. I was actually in 
Amagansett, I believe. I was recording with a gentleman who works at a place called Grain Surfboards. Oh, yes. And, oh, he's amazing. He, like, amazing. Re- repurposes wood into surfboards. Coolest guy. Yeah. And his wife, too, Ainsley. Super sweet. And coming to the East End, I really have to like manage my time because especially I went in the summer and it's like potentially three, four hours. So I had left very early and got there about an hour early. So I had time to kill. So I went to Bookhampton and I found your book. Wow. And just looking at the cover and the title, I'm like, okay, right up my alley. Sounds like an adventure story. Sounds like something set on the ocean. I'm in. Uh, I am conscious of the fact that there are going to be people listening who haven't read the book. Right. So I guess... No spoiler is, alerts. No, just uh, Well, okay. So... Yeah, and no spoilers, rather. There, <laughs> there are certain things I'm 100% not going to spoil. Okay, um, yeah. At some of the... I don't know if you would call them twists, but some of maybe the unexpected things you uncovered that I think I want to leave there in respect of the people who are going to read it after listening to us. But we probably should provide... Like maybe like the book tour synopsis or like the back yeah, page yeah, synopsis yeah. of like, what is this story about? Right, right. So um, let me tell you how I found out about the story because cool. I think this is a good way into it, which is also in the book, um, but I'll just do a quick quick synopsis. So um, after working at the Times, I'd worked at a couple of different news organizations. We started to have, we had our first child, my husband and I. And um, I realized that if we were to stay in the city and I was to be doing the job that I was doing, working 70 hours a week, we'd need to get two nannies to raise our son. I would never see my child, et cetera. So we had a really tiny place in the Northwest woods at the time that we would come out to on weekends and we loved it. And we increasingly loved the fall. Um, And uh, my husband was on a parental leave that semester. He's an academic. And it was during that period where we said, what if we try living here for Mm. a year give it a year, solid year and see if we like it or we hate it or, or what have you. And so it was during that year that I got a job working, which is part time, uh, which was perfect because I was a new mother um, at the East Hampton Star where they needed a reporter and David Rattray, who's the publisher and still editor, and I just hit it off uh, from day one. And uh, so I was there for about three and a half years. And near the end of my tenure there, um, an editor had joined the staff uh, to start a new magazine called East. Uh, his name is Biddle Duke, who's now a friend. And uh, we were just brainstorming story ideas. And he told me um, about this great untold story of the East End. Uh, and, you know, it was about these four young fishermen who uh, were lost at sea in a terrible storm in March of 84. Uh, there was a really interesting class component where there were these two men of, of, of great privilege who probably should have never even been on that fishing boat. And then these two more working class mm. um men from, from Montauk. Um, and then there was also this, this woman, Mary Stedman, who is the widow uh, of the young captain who still lives in East Hampton. And he started just going on and on and on about Mary. And I said, well, clearly this has struck a nerve with you. Why is it that you, you haven't told it? And he had been here his whole life. He's in his late fifties. And, you know, for various reasons, um, certainly alienating members of his own family and his social circle, I think it was just too difficult a story. Mm. And that really an outsider who didn't have um, any sort of longstanding ties here needed to come along and tell it from a much more objective uh, perspective. So he sort of gave me the keys 
to Mary and Mary wasn't ready to talk. And anyway, long story short, we moved to California for two years. Um, my husband had a midlife crisis and worked in Silicon Valley, which he has since been disabused of. But anyway, that's in a whole nother podcast. Um, and that was when um, sort of next summer, Mary and I sat down together and then, you know, um, ten tens of thousands of interview notes started to accumulate. And I realized that it wasn't just a magazine story for the, the Stars magazine that I had uh, on my hands, but the beginnings uh, of a book. Um, and it was really, I think, all along, I became, you know, these, these different themes would present themselves, um, fathers and sons and grief and loss and addiction, uh, whether through alcohol or, or, or drug use. Um, but it was really the women. So what's been so interesting is that obviously some people pick up my book and they want it to be another perfect storm, which mm -hmm. is an amazing book. Um, but of course it's not another perfect storm, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but, um, you know, I became very interested in, in the women and, and, and not just Mary, but, but the mothers and the girlfriends that they left behind and how it was that, that these men sort of came to life for me through the, the version of who they had been through the women that they had left behind. If that, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I loved that. I don't know if it's like disrespectful to say like the collateral damage, like the fallout, sort of like the the spider webbing of the the four men who were lost at sea, but then all of the lives that were impacted. And I was even thinking, you know, this happened in the 1980s. This is 2021. And now your life is greatly impacted by this story because you're totally. the one putting it out into the world. Yeah. I don't know. I found that so interesting. It is so interesting. <laughs> Also just how time loops, right? Mm. And like, I'll never stop thinking about this story. Anytime I'm at the water, I think about it. I think about these men. Um, I think about the survivors. Um, and it also felt like a story that was almost lost to the ravages of time, mm. where there were certainly many people in the book that I could have interviewed that had since passed away. Um, we come to learn about the four member, four men sort of differently. There's one for whom, who, you know, he's a very recent arrival, uh, Scott Clark to Montauk, uh, really amazing kid. And I, and there really just weren't many people left here, you know, his family members had all passed away that I could right. really kind of figure out who he had been. So he's still kind of like a gray sketch, whereas the other men, I feel like I was able to, to fill in. I was curious, like I, I understand Maybe I don't. The The story has all of the elements of being an incredible story or a movie or even like a miniseries. And I would think that, you know, it did make the papers that at least maybe somebody might want to run with it. But I guess it, I guess what happened was like the community kind of protected the story mm. from getting out. I don't, I don't know if I'm wrong about that, but I That's was like, wow, why did this take so long to come yeah. out? Like, this is incredible. Yeah. Oh, that it was right. I mean, I, I really think it was like this buried jewel that was sort of hidden in yeah. plain sight. And then obviously I went into it thinking, yeah, I sold the book based on one layer of the, of the story, which was that it was, it was about these four men in the storm and this boat and who they had been. And then as I started digging, there were just like 20 other layers beneath that. Mm. Um, and I agree. So I've actually just sold uh, the TV film rights. Um, I was going to, I figured, <laughs> I figured someone had to. It was a, also a busy summer because I had many, many, many uh, interviews and calls with, with, with producers. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Congrats. Thank you so much. Um, and so this is for a limited series, a six to eight episode uh, TV version. That's perfect. Yeah, of what happened. And there was also quite a bit of film interest. But I, I really do think, 
you know, we could spend for those that haven't read it, but you know, there's just a way of spending like a whole, a whole episode at Mahoneyville, which Mm -hmm. you'll not know what we're talking about unless you've read the book, but just, just a way of sort of, you know, exploring say the Connick family in in greater detail rather than just through an hour and a half film or what have you. Yeah. Um, So I'm excited about that. All right. So this is, I'll break the fourth wall a little bit here. Let's Uh, break the wall down. The selfish, (laughs) the selfish part of this podcast um, which has honestly just transformed my life in ways I'm like, it's so bizarre to me, is that I can read a book and now sit down with the very person who wrote the book and pick, so their, cool. pick their brain a bit. It's incredible. Honestly, it, it feels like my own little mini series, but. Absolutely. So I'm very excited. And these are, some of these are like, I was talking about like thoughts that were just popping in my mind last night. Um, the There's elements of the book that to me almost read like, fiction or like the metaphor and symbolism of like an epic story. And I'll Mm. explain. So Mike purchases this boat who pretty much everyone tells him like, this is not a vessel that is going to survive a bad storm. Like it is not capable of withstanding that. And you'd have to almost think that he too, maybe subconsciously or was like protecting the fact that he actually knew that too, but he had this desire and this passion to escape the rat race. And to me, that's also what Montauk sort of represented, like totally. that era of Montauk. And, and still a little bit today, even in the off yeah, season. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But still threw himself headfirst into this thing that was his ultimate demise. And I don't know, but that seems like there's like maybe a lesson in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's poetic in a sense. It's, oh, absolutely. It's, it's an epic. I mean, it's a truly epic tale. Yeah. As old as, you know, the hero meets the sea. And then, you know, like he's, he's really, I think, I think that was what I really came to appreciate about these men, particularly uh, Captain Stedman, Mike and, and Dave Connick was that, that they had really gone on this radical path of self-discovery, right? This wasn't just about catching fish. Mm. This was about something else like a real passion um, that I feel like in general, like I don't get like the sense of among say a banker or a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like they were really very, very connected to the natural world um, in so many ways. Uh, and there's just, there is something really poetic and, and quite beautiful and also ultimately tragic about that. Um, and it was interesting. So I'm still in, in, in pretty close touch with Chris Stedman, who's the captain's eldest son with whom you, you get to meet at the very, very end of the book. And um, his version, which again, this is just his particular opinion, but it's something interesting to think about, um, is that, and again, we're going to, we won't, really, I'll, I'll sort of speak around the, the various details so we're not spoiling anything, but his version was that subconsciously, just as you were saying, his father made this decision because he knew on land things weren't as they appeared mm-hmm. necessarily. And things were out of control and he couldn't get them in control. And so maybe the reason he stayed out so much longer, obviously, than anyone else in the fleet who had all made it back in, you know, safely, mostly. There was a few, there were a few capsized boats and what have you. Um, maybe there was some, like something subconsciously that, that was driving that decision. Not that it was a death wish. Not that, again, not like it was a very subtle sort of shift, if that makes sense. 
To me, it does 100%. And I'm going to go somewhere with this. Okay. 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 All right. So but it is interesting, like, the, you know, the fatefulness of our decisions and like the weight that they carry, even though even when we're navigating those decisions, we can't possibly know the outcome, the future outcome. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So I, I talk about Anthony Bourdain like incessantly on here. Um, <laughs> like, like my hero. Um, Amazing. I'm reading his biography right now that Lori Wooliver compiled. It's it's like just all interviews. Uh, I'll have to read that. Oh, it's so good. It's really great. And okay. the, the documentary about his life and death came out um, over the summer. And there's a parallel. There's a couple of parallels, but he essentially like got involved in a relationship at the end of his life that a lot of people think led to his eventual suicide. Mm. And he even said at the beginning of it, this is going to end badly. Mm. And everyone around him was like, while things are going bad, like, ah, I don't know about this. And he was just like, yeah, but she loves me. And mm. to me, that's like, uh, for Mike, it's the boat. And it's like, he, but, but he loved the boat. Um, I, I'm going to say something. I mean, this, this is my thought. Yeah, yeah, and please. Maybe sort of like to your point, you would have to be like a reader or a lover of stories to understand this. When somebody dies, it is never good for people. It's never good for their families. Truly, yeah. From a storytelling perspective, let me pause that for a second. Most of us, we're going to get pancreatic cancer. We're going to get Alzheimer's. We're going we're gonna to have a death that really sucks. And every death sucks. But from a storytelling perspective, there's a romanticism to sort of going out on your own terms. And I am not mm. supporting like suicide or anything tragic. I like, I really hope people understand that. But like when I look at Bourdain's death, I'm like, well, of course that's how he went out. Like th this yeah. guy. Yeah, of course. He wasn't going to get Alzheimer's and end up in like. Exactly. You know, and, and that probably. A rehabilitative home for the end of his life. There's just no way. Right. Yeah. There's almost like a, there was a vanity to his existence where it was just like, no, of course it was going to be something that was like going out with a, with an explosion. Blaze of glory. Exactly. Yeah. And that to yeah. me kind of was maybe what was going on with Mike too. Again, not that he wanted to die, but it was like, if I'm going to go out, of course it's going to be at sea because I love the sea. 100%. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And yeah. the more I thought about that and his decision-making, truly. I mean, and a, another reader had, had a bunch of people, you know, obviously they read it and they send me notes, which is honestly my favorite part of the process mm. um, is hearing what resonates with different people based on their own histories. But a, a reader shared with me that, that, you know, he thought that Mike's story would have actually been so much more tragic had he died, in, had he say not become a commercial fisherman right. and followed the traje trajectory of maybe his own father and, you know, become a diplomat or a lawyer or a banker, just something more traditional, right? Um, his dad had gone to Harvard and, and had sort of checked off all of those boxes um, and that there was something really beautiful actually. Uh, as tragic as his death was about exactly as you're saying, like, like going out and, and, and doing the thing you love until you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, he wasn't like in a skyscraper and had a heart attack, you know, cause he was like working too late, um, yeah. filing papers or something. So I agree. Okay. I mean, cool. <laughs> yeah. But it is, yeah. I mean, it, I agree. I mean, I think obviously the, the thing that I, uh, that I often have to keep in mind is just how young they were, you right. know, he was 32. Um, the other guys were 23, 19 and 18 and his wife was only 29 and they already had three children. So, um, 
it's complicated. And also I think the grieving part of the story with, with the lack of, of ever finding the bodies and the closure and needing like the human mind just really needs that um, to be able to process what, what comes next, I think for, for a lot of people, certainly. Um, and that would create just these, these ripple effects that, mm. that people would, would navigate with, you know, navigate more successfully, some more successfully than others. Uh, maybe I'm reading into this too much, but is that why you called it uh, lost boys rather than men because of their age? Yes. Um, I think some people are a little bothered by the use of boys, but I don't mean it like they were boys. They, they were men, proper men. Um, but yes, I do mean that, that there was some, there, there was sort of an adventure someness about them that was a little boyish. And some of the decision-making I think was maybe a little, not juvenile, but like not so well thought out. Um, like a man might not have certainly, I don't know, it's complicated, maybe picked a different boat or maybe made, you know, less rash decisions or, or what have you, if that, that makes sense. That's a hundred, that's how I read it. Like, yeah. like again, no, no, no disrespect, man, but like Peter Pan and, and like the Lost the Boys Peter, exactly. or, or like a Stand yeah. By Me type movie. Like these were guys who wanted adventure, who didn't want to be in the rat race, wanted something different. Yeah, that's okay. That's and there's that's a cost exactly that comes to that. A hundred percent. Ultimately, if you, if you, you know, commercial fishing is extremely dangerous, not just when a storm comes out of nowhere, but just, it, just the work itself. Um, and so, yeah, wrestling with all of those things, um, th those people that really kind of like to play in the realm of life and death, um, there's like a real adrenaline rush there. Um, and they're never going to become accountants probably. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> Another tangent, but I, it's really interesting that you said that because most of the people that I read and like the musicians that I love and the people that I looked up to as like artistic heroes, yeah, they are people who like tragically died young or drank themselves to death or like were poor their whole lives until they became sort of like a cult hero after their death. Um, but sort of like lived in the way that I like hurdle myself towards. Mm. And sometimes I do think like there is a cost to that. Like, yeah, you do miss out on the fact that like you might not have kids or a house or like the stability of a long, comfortable life. Right. But is the trade-off the excitement and the freedom and the, and the passion and all that? It's interesting. Like I definitely identified with these guys on the boat. I, I mean, I, I did too. I yeah. think there's part of, of a lot of us that are, more creative and maybe more artistic that, that, yeah. Like what's the point of just right going along and just like blandly going about your life and never taking risks and, 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 and there's such, uh, freedom in that and such courage, you know, mm. these guys were real rebels and, um, I'll never not be an admiration of, of, of many of the other choices they could have more easily taken and paths that they could have explored for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm blanking on the, you just said it before, but the name where the boys would come out and like sleep on the floor and eat. Oh, and at smoke. Mahoneyville? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That also represented, it's like punk rock. It's such, such this- Such a counterculture. Yeah, yeah. Such this freedom. I I agree that like there are still elements of that to Montauk, but do you think that like that as a year round- I guess it wasn't even around in the book, but like it's very seasonal. Yeah, yeah that yeah. is a way of life for Montauk. Do you, do you think that's like forever changed due to the popularity of of the summers now and the culture change? 
I mean, it seems pretty shifted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although uh, I was out there just a week ago and I do feel like once the exodus of summer people leave, it really still does feel sort of wild. Mm. Um, and that the people who are there that are choosing to be there are sort of there for a specific reason for the most part. Um, like there's a real hardiness to their to them. Like mm. if you're driving out there in January or February and the, the people that are choosing to be there. Um, but no, there's certainly not a Mahoneyville of the 21st century that I know of. It'd be so cool if there were uh, in, in Montauk today. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there just can't be when, when it's been so discovered when hotel rooms are $1,500 a night and then ridiculous things like that. It's just a completely different culture. Um, and this was also before, you know, like moms such as myself went and took surfing lessons with their right. kids. Like this is surfing, when, surf, when surfing um, was actually like, a, you know, a revolutionary act and you were like really like, you know, not seen as part of the mainstream and they were smoking a ton of weed mm -hmm. and they were experimenting with, you know, mind altering drugs. And um, this is a real way of life. And certainly that has, has shifted. Um, yeah. Yeah, you captured that really well and I think really did that era and that lifestyle and that place and time a lot of justice. Uh, as you can tell, I'm strongly opinionated here. <laughs> I will, I'm will. i not paying him to say <laughs> any of no, these no, no. things. Well, I'm about to <laughs> say something negative about someone else. I won't say the author of the book and I know you're from now the world of authors, so these are my thoughts, but I just read a book that was a memoir about Montauk and going to Montauk and it was the perspective of that summer crowd. And it was all like, it was like finance bros who were like ultra privileged and just wanted to get wasted and find the hottest person to sleep with. And to me, I was just like, oh my God, like these are real people, but this is so vapid. Mm -hmm. Like it lacks passion. It lacks cool. There's totally. like all this sex in the book, but it wasn't sexy. Like if that makes sense, like huh. it was just I'm like, oh my gosh, if I was a local, I would completely understand just finding this to be drivel. <laughs> um, and the utter disdain of the people that are coming out on helicopters and, yeah, you know, unreal. throwing their money around and getting bar service at, you know. I found, yeah, yeah, I found that to be fascinating too. I read that in another book also, a third book, which I actually loved, um, by Trent Pressler. Who oh, yes. Oh, Little and Often. Yeah, Beautiful I really loved book. that. I just finished that as well. Oh, but he mentioned, yeah, that how people could take a helicopter. And it's just like, oh my goodness, know, that is absurd. really wild. 20 minutes, they're, they're here. Yeah. yeah. But your, so your position's interesting because you're an outsider and an insider. I mean, for here, no, I could never say that I'm an insider, which mm. is so interesting because where I grew up in LA, you know, you can sort of show up the week before and be like, I'm from here now, mm. you know, um, and people are constantly reinventing themselves largely based on the, the, the industry that, that's there. Um, but whereas here, what I found so interesting once I joined the, the star staff um, was I would ask someone where they're from, you know, invariably in a conversation. And um, even if they had been born at Southampton Hospital, there would be sort of a, a caveat that, well, you know, I, I was born here, but, but you know, several generations of my family were from elsewhere. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit, and I find that a lot on the East Coast. Um, there's this sort of rigidity about like provenance and place and history and families and wealth or what have you. That's, that's really, I find radically different than the West Coast. Um, but yes, I, I live here now. My kids are going to the local public school. 
Um, but no, I can never sort of claim to be from here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it certainly made the writing of this book, um, you know, I knew that I was going to ruffle some feathers, uh, and I did. And um, it's part of the work that I do. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's not that I can't go out to Montauk. I certainly, I, I can and I do. Um, but certainly in, in some communities, you know, there and in, in East Hampton, um, I'm not like on the top 10 most beloved people list. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. I wanted to ask about that because it's something I've experienced traveling, it, especially with like with island cultures or I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and in a lot of Southeast Asian cultures, there's a lot of gossip. A lot of people know everyone. um, And sometimes they'll, they'll really try to like protect what they say in their stories. And so even completely different culture, but we were in Iceland over the summer. Oh, I'm dying to go to Iceland. So, so beautiful. Cool. But I had, you know, you're always learning when you're traveling. I never realized, like, there are only 300,000 Icelanders. Like, at any given time, non-pandemic era, there's 2 million expats and tourists there, but a tiny amount of Icelanders. And I had the hardest time doing episodes and getting people to talk. Mm -hmm. I was ghosted. I showed up to one where, like, I walked two miles, I had horrible diarrhea oh, no. and I was just like, With I'm all still, of your equipment? well, yeah. I'm like, okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to gut this out. I'll still walk. Yeah. Yeah. And they ghosted me. They didn't show up. So I'm not disparaging them, but it became very apparent to me that it was like, nope, I don't want people knowing my business. Mm. And so maybe because Montauk was kind of like a countercultural village and insular, people were trying to maybe protect some of this. And I, I read through your book, like there were varying degrees of like accessibility to people and like what they were willing to tell you. Mm-hmm. This is your first off season since you wrote the book, right? Yes, it is. That yeah. to me, as I'm reading, this is so fascinating. I'm like, oh man, like what is that going to be like? Like, are you, mm. you know, it? I, I don't know how many books you sold, but I know that like, initial run like Bookhampton sold out and stuff like that like yeah, are you going to get well. the side eye at the, at the IGA and it's like that? I know there's that crazy lady again do no, you do kidding. you wonder about that or? well you know I I do I, I did a book club actually with a bunch of local moms um, that I had met when my my son was just born and I've kind of, you know, these aren't very, very close friends of mine, but I've gotten to know them sort of peripher- peripherally over the years. And yeah, I mean, I'm much more nervous, mm-hmm. like talking to people who know me about my book than I am to total strangers when I'm doing a talk, mm-hmm. for instance, right? So yeah, like, you know, when I stand out at, at the yard at Sag Harbor Elementary to pick up our kids, like, I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> have people read the book? Have they liked it? Have they hated it? Um, they're probably not even thinking about that because that's just like a degree of maybe narcissism that I have about, you know, again, like, it's all just very new, like learning how to navigate, um, yeah, living here and, 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 and writing about the place. Um, which is also another reason why for, for at least my next project, I'm not going to write a true story based here. Mm. Um, it just feels like invariably there are skeletons that I'll find. And um, I would just maybe rather not not do that. 
for for my next project at yeah. least. Yeah. Can you share what that is or that's still Yeah, on yeah, our- yeah. So this this was I found this through a friend of a friend of a friend um, who reached out and um, it involves a small town in Connecticut called Cheshire, Connecticut, which is a suburb of New Haven, a very sort of traditional middle class suburb. Um, and this involves sort of the uh, something about the eighties that I'm fascinated by. You know, so my husband is an academic and when he writes about people, he changes their names. And when he read an early draft of the book, he was like, well, have you considered changing everyone's name? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which obviously I can't do because I'm a journalist and I use real names unless I'm writing about a whistleblower or something like that or someone whose identity needs to be protected. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was certainly a lot. And, and um, you know, I... Again, I went into the book thinking it was one story, and then the you know the the thing that I love about my work is that you know it, you sort of it's a path of of discovery all along, and um, you know as I was sort of wrestling with what to put in or not put in and the ramifications of that, right? Not just as for the book itself, but for my own life and my personal life, and and yeah, it was, it was heavy at times, mm. definitely um, to know what to put in and what to leave out and. Uh, there's certainly many other parts of the story that I could have told, but I, I felt like I needed to at least tell that I felt like the story was so full and so rich and so beautiful and tragic and it needed a full retelling of it rather mm. than like the, the sanitized version, if that makes sense. Is there someone, because there, there's a lot of people, like I said, the spider webbing of this is so interesting. And it actually, I, I was thinking about this again, because I'm, I'm reading the Bourdain book, like, when I eventually pass, like, what would the spider webbing of my life be? And then also, like, gosh, what are the things that people want to uncover about me? Or like, <laughs> exactly, like, oh, right? Oh, no. Be careful what you wish for. Right, right. But uh, was there a person in the book that you sort of, like, identified with or, like, clicked the most with and mm. sort of enjoyed either talking to or talking about? So the book wouldn't have happened without Mary's early participation and cooperation. And um, I have never encountered another source like her, Mm. nor do I think I will exactly again. Um, She possesses a photographic memory and we would talk for, you know, three or four hours at a time about a Wednesday in March of 1984 with just an insane amount of detail and recollection um, and we would also, you know, it was, it, it became an interesting, a much different relationship than say writing a newspaper story and then moving on where, you know, we got to know each other over a period of about a year, year and a half to almost two years, not talking every day, but talking a lot and talking in, in, in so much depth about obviously the most personal thing that's ever happened to her, things mm. that have ever happened to her. Um, some of which were off the record, will never leave, uh, my notebooks or my computer, but um, there was also a give and take where, you know, um, I would share certain things about my own life and we would talk about, you know, relationships and shared interests. And um, I felt like there had to be a give and take. I mean, she was being so very vulnerable with me. Um, and even though the story wasn't about me, we also connected on other things just as human beings, as women, as mothers, Um as she's very creative as fellow creative people that are trying to, to juggle all those many balls, uh, simultaneously. Um, I was just, uh, yeah, I'll never, I'll never stop also thinking about her and, and, and all the different decisions she made and why she made them and, and just really what a complex person she was. I feel like in general, 
um, throughout history, at least men get to lead these Mm. real complicated, uh, fascinating lives. And women are often left to just sort of raise children and, you know, cook and clean or what have you. Certainly for that generation often was the case. And, you know, she was a rebel in her own right and was kind of living a life on her own terms. And, you know, she was also one of the women at this book club was pointing out, you know, she was alone most of the time. Right. Like her husband was never around. Um, I mean, he was there on the weekends, but like Monday to Friday, she was a single mom with three kids and all of those attendant responsibilities. And that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, to shoulder at such a young age. Um, yeah. She had these like premonitions or she could sort yes. of like find the symbolism in things too, which I thought very was very witchy. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very witchy. She's yeah. probably casting a spell as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So about like who gets a story and who doesn't, I found it so interesting that some of the people and families in the book had sort of like written their own biographies, some of like those sort of like peripheral characters. Stedman's had for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah I can't recall men. though. Did she, does she have a, she did not hmm. No. That would be yeah. really interesting. And I, I was thinking about it just for my own family. Like I'd love to get my father to write down his history before he can't. Like mm. what happens is that we die and these stories, you know, they go with us. Right. So there is really something I think to just, or even if it's an oral history that you record of your parents or your relatives talking about your family history. Yeah. Um, there were so many families that didn't have that, of course. And, and not that a journalist is always going to come along and tell your life story, but I think it's so interesting even just for the next generation to get like, what their ancestors, you know, what, what the history was like. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. That, that, that don't get passed down. Yeah. Hers would be fascinating. And like, like her perspective would be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole book could have just been about Mary, um, right. you know, in one, in one regard. Um, and yeah, it took some sort of time and our kind of separation to, for me to realized that I was never going to write, you know, an authorized biography. I was never going to write the book Mary wanted me to write. There was something that I was always going to include that was going to upset her. Right. Um, And so that was a struggle as well. Sort of the closeness of our journalist source dynamic and then the estrangement of that. Yeah. I'm, uh, I guess like a lot of this country have been like following this case of the the van life girl, Gabby yes. Petito. Oh my gosh. Why are we, I, I'm also obsessed with it and I don't exactly know why. It is strange. I'm like, I, I don't quite remember like JonBenet Ramsey, but I, I don't know if like- You're this, too young for that. Yeah. This okay. is a little JonBenet Ramsey-ish. All right. Yes. So was was the fervor like the same? Oh yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Because I was wondering like in the internet age, like, are we always going to do this now? Where like everyone's an internet detective, but- and like following this, like you hear the word closure a lot. Like, okay, they found her body. At least that brings some type of closure. There's no closure in this story because there's no body and there's really like no real wreckage. Um, again, my memory's a bit hazy because I've read a bunch of books past reading your book, but I do recall at the end there was a gentleman who, I guess through like boats um, getting like a lot of drag at a certain area, he was like pretty sure he thinks he knows where like the wreckage might still be. Um, since publishing, has there been a renewed interest in finding this or have people been like revisiting the story yes. and like hoping to find it? Yes, yes, yes. So um, interestingly 
enough last spring before the book came out, this young shipwreck hunter based in Amagansett. I mean, he has a a job that pays the bills, but in his part-time hobby, he's a shipwreck hunter and a diver. Um, His name is Ben Roberts and he reached out and, you know, I think we spoke for an hour and a half about like coordinates and, and, you know, it was just so fun to, to share in that um, obsession with someone that also sort of gets it because most people are not as fascinated by it as maybe I am. Um, and so he, uh, he, myself, uh, a captain and two other divers went out about a month ago. Um, and we went, he had been, you know, I had sent him all of my documents from the U S coast guard and he was comparing it with X, Y, and Z and these different rumors around different hangs in the, the, in the vicinity. So we actually went out and we, we, we left Montauk Harbor Harbor and we went out for about an hour and a half and there was only water, which I had never been out, out that far at sea off the coast of Montauk. And these guys put on these insane suit, you know, scuba suits. I'm not a diver. And they had cameras and they had lights and all of these sorts of things. And they went down uh, 200 feet, which I guess by the time you're down 200 feet, there is just no ambient light. So it's like, you know, you're five feet away from someone and you can't even see them unless they have a light. Um, and it was very, very dark. And the, the, vid- the video footage that he shared with me is quite haunting. Um, and they, they found, so down at the bottom of the sea, you know, it's covered in mounds and mounds and mounds of uh, sand. But they think that they saw the silhouette. That's the fire alarm. Oh, it, comes, it goes every day off at, at noon just to test it or what have you. Um, they think that they found the uh, the outline of a hull of a st- you know a steel vessel, and they also saw a bunch of pieces of white painted wood, and they also saw and and are trying to again they need to do more dives to positively ID it, but they believe that that the model of the engine that was there is the same one that was on the windblown. Wow. Now again, you know they're very he's very wary of saying this is definitely the windblown because many more dives have to take place and they'd have to actually go down and bring something up. And, you know, this was just sort of a preliminary dive. Um, but it was really thrilling and yeah. quite haunting actually to be out there in that exact spot right? Um, where they maybe had been. That was at least close to where they had last radioed for contact. We don't really know the last seconds and minutes of what, what happened because there was no documentation of that. Uh, there, they, there was never a mayday call or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, I think we, we were talking and, and certainly for some families, there will be closure if that is positively ID'd. And I think some people would prefer maybe for it to just remain a mystery. And, you know, it's been so many decades now, like, you know, what's the upshot of really knowing? Obviously, right. they're not going to find a body at this point. Um, but, yeah, it's just another part of just the vastness of the sea and, and, and how unknown all of that is, which I really appreciated much more just being out in, in that in that exact vicinity. Yeah, I, that's incredible. So cool. Uh, for like the closure, I can't, again, God, my brain is, maybe I spent too many days at that house in the Hamptons too. Um, <laughs> there, there was someone who was like saying like, I'm still holding out hope that maybe they went to like Aruba or something like that. And yes, so Donna Clark, the mother of Scott Clark, okay. one of the amazing stories of she, again, she had passed away long before I came onto the story, but his first cousin who was close with her shared that she went to her grave believing her son was still out there. 
uh, and she worked for uh, TWA Airlines and had all of these airline miles and she would go all around the world putting up signs for her missing son. She put hundreds of thousands of miles on her car looking for him. Mm. Um, So again, someone had said, well, even if they find the wreck, like some people could say like, oh, but they had floated away to, you know, I don't know, um, Bermuda. (laughs) the Bermuda Triangle right, that was it. Yes, and yes, were picked yes. up by, a, you know, so meaning that, that there'll never really be so much closure because it's not like they're going to find a body at this point. Um, but but I think for others, just knowing that it's there and that, that you know, the wind blown is actually, has been positively ID'd, we'll, we'll, we'll provide some sense of closure for people. Yeah, and that's why, again, like I've, I've made the point, but at, on the one sense, on, on the one hand, it's it's so heartbreaking to like, like be holding out for that hope, but like from a story perspective, if like, again, if this was fiction, it would just be like, wow, what, what, what an incredible story this person conjured up to like include all these characters. And there's, there's. <laughs> I made all of it up. No, no, <laughs> I mean, I think there was like within a family, some contention about this one point, but like there was like an alleged proposal by a young man, like right before he went off, like, okay, we're going to go on this, this uh, what a three week trip. And, and when I come back, we're going to get married. And it's like, Oh my God, how heartbreaking is that? Like that's I such know. an incredible story. I know. Yeah. And I met with the, with the, you know, the woman who shared it with me multiple times. And, um, I can't believe that it's not true, you know, uh, based on her reaction and, uh, but again, I, none of us were there. Yeah. So it gets tricky when there's just one person and one's version of, of what happened. Yeah, and I did try to point out to the reader different discrepancies along the way, of yeah. different memories and when they were in alignment or misalignment and what have you. But yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. Um, I'm not saying all this just just to like promote the book. Um, <laughs> I, I, I loved it, and that's why I'm, oh, I'm, I'm here. Thank you for making the trip. Yeah, of course. I've, it's not, it's so thrilling to put something out. Honestly, to um, the best part of writing a book, I think, uh, has been. Uh, not everyone obviously loves it, nor should they. But when people really connect with it, um, it just—it's a—it's a good feeling. Uh, it was such an obsession of mine for so long, and mm. I think really uh, hit something in me that was very, very deep and meaningful. And um, and sometimes that happens with readers as well who encounter it. So I'm very grateful. Oh yeah, of course. Listen, I'm not like a uh, like a review person really. I always like say like I hate Yelp so much. Um, but it, I don't know, e- even in like that book I mentioned that I did not like, there was a value in reading that. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it was because I was making connections like for this conversation and um, yeah, the I don't know. Fund bro memoir, you'll have to. I'll tell you as soon as I <laughs> turn this off. <laughs> um, but Sounds right up my alley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but oh yeah, so obviously I think people should read the book, but if they want to read your ongoing journalism, your older stuff, how can they find you and the book? You can find me, um, on my website, which is, uh, amandamfairbanks.com. And my book is available from local indies to, um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever you get your books. So, um, but I'd love it if you could support your local indie bookseller. Yeah. Same. Sure. Um, and and I'm I, so happy you found this at Bookhampton, which has been such a champion of the book. And um, they're just so great. I love everyone there, especially Jesse. Jesse, oh yeah. if you're listening, I'm obsessed with you. Actually, <laughs> before I sign off, I should pick your brand because I was early here until the road was closed. And then I had to figure it around and I was like, oh, just no, on time. Yes. But I was going to and probably still will. There's a, like a used bookstore nearby. 
But um, Canios, maybe? Yes. Yeah, Canios is cool. But I always forget to ask people that sometimes I remember, but can we plug something from like either Seg Harbor or out here if somebody's visiting on a weekend? Like, I don't know, a place to eat or something to do that like you really love. Mm. I don't know, sometimes that's hard because like favorites is a hard thing, but. I mean, I just, I guess if you're in Sag Harbor, it just has such a rich literary tradition. Mm. So I might swing by Canios and, you know, there's, it's a really kind of eccentric bookstore. It's like they have new releases, they have like old releases. It's, there's like a lot of dust involved in a sort of charming (laughs) way. Um, so I might swing by Canio's um, and get a coffee at Sagtown Coffee, which has delicious coffee. Cool. Uh, grindstone donuts are pretty amazing. Ooh. And if you want to have like a fancy lunch, I just there's something about the American Hotel that I just huh. love. Um, cool. A lot of writers back in the day used to sit and eat there, and I don't know, maybe there are little spirits around or something. It's oh, just kind man. of a groovy, cool. I like it's, that. It's kind of fancy, but in a like. I don't know, in a nice way in the off season, especially well, less fun in the summer. But you're in the part of that tradition. It's now, pretty so. chill. Yeah. 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 Okay. I will sign off. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Oh, so much. Thank you for your interest in your time. Cheers. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 249 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you again to Amanda for having me out in Sag Harbor. It's a beautiful home and a beautiful neighborhood, and it's just nice to be. It's nice to be out in the world. She had a really cool dog too. Actually, I got to play with two guest dogs on the same day, and that always makes me happy. Okay, Voyagers, go check out the book. I would implore you to do so, even if it's going to your library. I would prefer you support the author, but I also get it. I go to the library a lot too. But whatever you do, please don't buy it on Amazon, unless it's like very last resort. But yeah, it's a fantastic read. It's a pretty quick read, and it's one that's going to keep you interested. I'm really excited for the series she talked about. Like as I was reading this, I was thinking like this this plays out. Of course, this is going to have to be on the screen. It's like the perfect story for that. So, okay, I'll have another one coming right after this one shortly because I recorded two when I was out in Sag Harbor. But for now, I will sign off and I will say, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon. Thank you.